Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff, International Editor of the New Statesman in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 23rd of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we take a look back at our predictions for 2021 and discuss what we got right and wrong. Did we predict the trajectory of the pandemic? Headed into Christmas weekend, I want to answer your questions about the rising number of COVID cases. And I want to start by acknowledging how tired, worried, and frustrated I know you are. Events in Belarus, Afghanistan, did I predict developments in the Indo-Pacific? Was Jeremy right about crises in mid-income countries? From this moment, the executive branch of the government, along with my 23 ministers, we will not submit. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Well, for those listeners who don't recall, um, we're going back in this episode to what we said in the episode of January 8th, 2001. Uh, we started that episode with a, a discussion of the um, storming of the Capitol, which of course had happened two days before in Washington. Uh, but then Emily and I each offered three predictions for the year ahead. So we're going to go through those one by one and see how we did. All your money back. It's accountability journalism and the people we are holding accountable are ourselves. Yes, well, yeah, exactly. So for the first prediction, Jeremy and I had a similar prediction. I predicted that the U.S. would not achieve herd immunity until at least the fall and that we would spend the year largely the same way that we spent 2020. At the time, this was informed um, both by the slow start to the vaccine rollout in the United States, but also um, vaccine hesitancy, which even back in the winter of 2021 was very obviously going to be an issue in my country. Um, and Jeremy, you had a similar prediction, but it was for the world. And you said that you did not think that come December, we would look back and think, ah, in 2021, we'd returned to normality. I, I think we got this one largely right. Although I will say that the Biden administration really stepped up the vaccine rollout in the spring. 
the issue is no longer availability or access to vaccines in the United States, vaccine hesitancy remains an issue. And then the the new variants obviously threw us for a loop. Yeah, I think I think it's worth stressing, first of all, that though it seems obvious to say now that we haven't had a full return to normality, particularly with the onset of the Omicron variant and new restrictions across much of the the rich world and and a still distinctly unvaccinated um, global south, or at least in parts. It seems quite obvious to say that, of course, we're not back to normal now, but it, that didn't necessarily seem the case when we were making these predictions. There was a certain optimism about vaccines propelling us back to normality pretty fast. And in fact, Ito, our colleague had, and, and sometime co-host of this podcast, was on with us and said he disagreed with us because he said, well, in the rich world, there's going to be such investment in vaccines and that will that will help. And, and he wasn't he wasn't wrong. Um, vaccines did make a huge difference where they were available. But despite that, they were not able to get us completely out of the woods. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, he was right. His point was that the multiplier for governments made investment in vaccines worth every penny or cent and that therefore we would get rapid vaccination. And essentially, I mean, we had a slower start here on continental Europe than in the UK and the US, but essentially that's what happened. You had the the majority of people in rich countries vaccinated by the summer or late summer, if you're looking at places like Japan or um, uh, Australia. But of course, I think none of us fully anticipated and listening back to the conversation in that episode, I think I think that's clear, is just how big a threat new variants would pose to um, the recovery, even in the vaccinated parts of the world. And of course, we had we had the, the, the first uh, notable one of those was Delta coming out of the surge of cases in seemingly in India. And then more recently, Omicron, which seems to have originated somewhere in the southern part of the African continent, although that's not certain. If anything, we, we underplayed the extent to which the slow vaccination rollout in the poorer countries would rebound onto the highly vaccinated rich world and imperil the the apparent normality that, that did return over the summer. And I think actually, if we'd been assessing this, these predictions in the summer, Emily, we, we might have had a different take on them, you know, absolutely, uh, you'd feel like things were getting back to normal. But I think I think we end the year in a very different place. No, I think I think that's completely right. At one point in the episode, I very dramatically say something like, um, we won't be going outside in 2021. And that, that wasn't right at all. There were there were moments of this year where I was eating indoors and it just a few weeks ago went in, inside to a concert. But it's it's listening to you just now, it, it does strike me that these two things are connected. That these moments of normalcy that we experienced in the so-called rich world, not only did they come at the expense of the global south, for example, getting vaccinated, but 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 the fact that we didn't put more of an effort on making sure that the world is vaccinated has come back right now to to haunt us um, because we we are dealing with a variant that likely is the result of people who had less access to vaccines and not just less access but you know a few weeks ago we had we had Alex on the podcast and she was saying it's not just that they don't have vaccines in some countries it's in some cases there is also vaccine hesitancy there but it's also the logistics which is why many people in many countries are saying you need to waive the patent and the intellectual property rights and let the vaccines be manufactured all around the world yeah and and actually we will talk about 2022 in our next episode but looking ahead i wonder if a, a more systematic response might be what's needed to to genuinely return some sort of normality but one thing one thing i want to add to this actually is that and i think we did touch on it in the at the start of the year was that um, when we say normality, we're talking about 
being able to move around, travel freely, mix in indoor spaces. But I mean, we did we did already hint then at the fact that the normality that would return might be quite a different one. And I think that too has been borne out. You know, you look at the way that some supply chains have been reshaped by the tumult of the last couple of years. You look at um, shifts in the workplace. You know, I think it's fairly clear that that some degree of homeworking is probably here to stay. You look at shifts in the labour market. Um, the balance has tilted slightly towards labour from capital, um, particularly as in the rich world, as, as some workers have reconsidered their their careers and um, the conditions they're willing to work under. And so I think there too, the idea of a, retur- of a return to normality, as in the, the normality of 2019 and very early 2020, is, is really for the birds. I think I think that's that's right. Um, and I think that there was a sense, at least here, there was a lot of discussion as Biden came in that we couldn't just go. I mean, this is this is why he says build back better. Right. That that's it. That was his catchphrase, yeah. because the, the idea wasn't just to go back to the way things were, but to improve upon it. Um, and I think that we did at the start of the year, at least in the United States, see that there was sort of this flurry of action coming out of the White House, this this huge drive to get people vaccinated, hundreds of millions of vaccine doses given out you know, the, the, these executive orders. Um, and in more recent months, the Biden administration, Adam Tews has a, had a piece on this recently for us, it stalled, both because of Congress doing Washington business as usual. But also, I think there's a sense that the Biden White House wants to go back to normal. And it's kind of like, well, you can't yet, the pandemic isn't over. Mm-hmm. And also, you you need to be better than that and do more than that. That's the only way that we as a as a country and you know, as a as a global community, are going to make it out of this. Mm. When we spoke at the start of the year, as I said, this was in the wake of the storming of the Capitol, and the sense that um, Biden had a huge task to take on. He had to to repair American politics and society, use the opportunity of the pandemic to quote unquote build back better. I think there was a kind of a mixture of of anticipation, but a degree of optimism that things things could only get better. It seems that we're ending the year with quite a few storm clouds over the Biden administration. Do you think it's been a worse year than expected for, 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 for Biden, you know, coming up to the 12 month mark since his inauguration? I think that the first 100 days were probably better than expected. And that after that, it, I, I think he's ending the year in a worse place than than we thought. I think no. the way in which the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I know we're going to speak about in a bit, happened, hurt. I think that the fact that the Democratic majority in the Senate is so slim and certain senators are not willing to play ball has has hurt him. I mean, the, we're ending the year with his domestic agenda not passed. So yeah. there's sort of no way there's no way around that, um, that he came in saying, OK, we're going to do this and we're going to have climate finance and we're going to extend these child tax credits that are cutting child poverty in half. Um, and that just hasn't happened. So a- as good as those first three months were, I don't think there's any way around the fact that this is not where the Biden administration would have wanted to end this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And listeners who want to hear more about that are in for a treat in January with a special series uh, on World Review by Emily on the first year of Biden. So look out for that. I'm looking forward to listening to it myself. Thanks. Yes, a three-part series on Biden's battle for the soul of America. Moving right along, my second prediction was that Alexander Lukashenko would stay in power in Belarus. It's relatively easy to confirm that one, unfortunately. Yes. The short version is that I was 
right. He is indeed still in power. And I, I, I think that I was right for the reasons that I said, which is it, it's not that the people who have been protesting his regime are not very brave or, or very determined. I, I don't mean to suggest that at all, but there are just limited levers for them to pull, for the West to pull, particularly if the Kremlin does not decide that he does more harm than good, right? Until Russia, until Russia decides to ditch Lukashenko, I don't see how he can be forced out. Um, I did want to note that Ito also on that episode said, well, there's a difference between being in power with legitimacy and sort of clinging to power. And I think that's true. And I, I do think that we've seen that difference this past year. And, and indeed, as Ito's reporting has explored, you know, the, the way in which he's responded to sanctions from the West by using migrants who are in, in just desperate circumstances and trying to push them across the Polish and Lithuanian borders I mean, this does not. This is not a person who's like comfortably in power, but it is nevertheless a person who is staying in power. Yeah, for for me, the the headline as to how this story has developed over the course of the year has been less what's happened to the protest movement, unfortunately, because it has it has been broken, um, as you say, but the extent to which Belarus has turned into a sort of you know a rogue state on the very borders of the EU, and we saw mm-hmm. that in May with the the kind of the forced landing of a, of a Ryanair flight containing a dissident journalist Roman Pratisevich, and his subsequent incarceration and very dubious televised confession or, 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 or recanting of his criticisms of the regime. And then, as you say, Emily, the um, the way that the Belarusian government has tried to weaponize migration by channeling Middle Eastern migration over its border with, with Poland. And I think it was always clear that the internal affairs of Belarus were a problem for the rest of Europe, but the extent to which it has become a kind of perma crisis on the on the edge of the EU is really astonishing and I think we, we haven't heard the end of that story um, and we'll, we'll obviously come on to talk about the current situation between Russia and Ukraine but the relationship between Russia and Belarus is not irrelevant to that either there is this sense of a kind of a line of crisis along along Europe's eastern frontiers and the survival of Lukashenko and his digging in and his underwriting by Russian power is really truly remarkable and I think one of one of the most I opening stories of the year. No, I agree. And I think it's, it, I think it's certainly one that, that is not going away in, in 2022. Indeed. So my second prediction moving on to that was that the Biden administration would withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, and listening back to how we talked about this then, I, I, I sort of feel, I don't know if I really deserve full marks for this because on the surface, yes, uh, I was right to say that I thought that Biden would, would withdraw, but in nothing of what I said in that episode, nor in the article that I'd written about the coming year, did I anticipate the sheer chaos and mismanagement of that withdrawal. You know, Emily, you and I were talking in that episode about whether or not Biden would leave a small number of special forces. Would there be some sort of financial package to support the Afghan government after the uh, departure of, of, of US forces? Um, how would the US bind in regional players Pakistan, Iran, um, China, into some sort of settlement there. And that just assumed such a degree of organization and foresight. That we did not see. (laughs) That we just, I think we we, we were blind to the possibility that it could be so chaotic. And of course, what we did see was, yes, as we had both predicted, Emily, uh, Biden did announce, I think it was in April, that um, the US would stick to the agreement and and withdraw. He said they would be out by the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. 
Um, but just the lack of coordination with allies and then particularly the lightning speed at which the Taliban took over the country, which really spoke of the hollowness of the, um, the institutions that the US and its allies had built up over the previous 20 years. And then particularly those horrific final scenes in, in Kabul as the West scrambled to get its nationals out of the country, just, I think, completely defied the idea of, of this being a an organised and rational process. And I think it has really damaged the West lastingly to, to have those images broadcast around the world. Not only you know the, the fact of the withdrawal itself speaking to the failure of the Afghanistan mission, but then the fact that it ended in such kind of grotesque turmoil, I think just sort of provides an icon for the likes of Russia and China that challenged the West's um, legitimacy and capabilities, um, you know, and that will that will be the case for years to come. What are your thoughts on this? I think that's right. I think that the manner of the withdrawal, the the how badly it was executed, was not predicted. I, there are some people in Washington who say, well, or around the country who are supportive of the withdrawal, who say, um, you know, no matter how we left, it was going to be bad. Okay, maybe, but this that's not an excuse for how badly it went. And I say this as somebody who, at the start of the year, said, yes, I think that we should leave Afghanistan and and who still thinks that we should have left Afghanistan, but not, <laughs> not in such a way as to leave behind the people who helped us for decades, us being Americans in the West and people who said that, oh, we're coming into your country and we're going to stay there for two decades and it's going to be for your own good. I think the other thing that we didn't fully or that I did not fully pr- appreciate was the, the, the diplomatic rupture that this would cause between the United States and its allies. Um, that the, the 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 way in which was this was done, I think, had real reverberations within the transatlantic relationship between, you know, especially the United States and France, but the United States and other European allies as well. And I, I don't know that we're done with the fallout from that. Yeah, and indeed, that's I think relevant to some of what we want to discuss for our next predictions. Yes. So my final prediction was that tensions would escalate between India and China. I actually got this more right in the podcast version than in the written version of my predictions. So the short version is that happily, tensions in a military sense did not escalate, right? We did not see in 2021, the kind of physical border clash that we saw in 2020. However, I think it it is fair to say that diplomatically, and in terms of just the trajectory of the two countries that we did, we, we are seeing a continuation maybe of tensions. Maybe it's it's fairer to say a continuation of tensions between India and China. We have certainly seen the United States um, try to open its arms to a more robust partnership with India. So that part, I think that we, we did see. And I, I really do think that we've seen the Biden administration and the United States more generally continue to try to position itself as, as a counter to, to China and I think American foreign policy right now is is really focused on that on that principle. Indeed, and I mean just on the um, the broader picture. I mean, I think we we, we have seen an ongoing um, growth in the importance of the so called Quad of the US, um, Australia, India, and Japan, which I think speaks to India's alignment with um, the US and other allies in the contest with China in the region. But I think it's worth um, moving on to a a sort of related subject that we talked about when you put this prediction at the start of the year, Emily, which was um, this question of whether or not Biden would manage to build 
a coherent alliance of um, democracies to stand up to the likes of China and, and, and to a lesser extent Russia. Um, there was a lot of optimism about this with the um, impending arrival of the Biden administration. There was talk about his summit of democracies. There was talk about the idea of the G7 becoming a D10. So the G7 adding um, South Korea, India and Japan to make itself a more coherent bloc um, uh, aimed at China. We both voiced a certain scepticism about that, which I think has been borne out by the events of the year. There, there have been new initiatives to draw the the West or the sort of China Skeptic Alliance together, whether you're looking at the, the G7, which was billed, um, this was back in June, was billed as the West being back, um, whether you're talking about... Um, the AUKUS deal uh, for nuclear submarines between the UK, US and Australia, where they're talking about Biden's, um, in the end, virtual summit of democracies. But I think that the rifts in the West and in that alliance have been also very clear to see. You saw it with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You also saw it with the with the AUKUS announcement, which was handled very poorly and you know, managed to alienate France, forcing Biden to sort of to move to repair that relationship later in the year. And I'd say that the summit of democracies didn't quite live up to some of the excitable billing. I don't think we necessarily end the year with the uh, Western alliance or democratic alliance drastically stronger than it was at the start of the year, in fact, possibly even a bit weaker. What do, what do you think on that? I, th- I think on this point, I'm ending the year where I started the year, which was if you think that an alliance based on democratic values is a good thing, which some people debate, some people say this this isn't realistic. It's about you know it's about geopolitics, and you should just be honest about that. But if you are trying to do this based on democracy and values, you don't build that by holding a summit, right? You you don't become better democracies by saying we are democracies. Democracy is not something you you announce. It is something that you practice. And the United States is not currently practicing the best democracy that it can be practicing. We have still not passed federal voting rights legislation, despite the fact that states across the country are passing laws that will make it more difficult for people, particularly people of color and particularly black people to vote. That's how you that's that that would be to me if we had been able to do that, that would have been proof that the United States can be democratic and Mm -hmm. lead the world. Convening a summit is not that particularly given that the summit had both democratic and quasi democratic and non democratic guests. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that more impressed me, the same week that the virtual summit for democracy was held, the Biden administration announced an anti-corruption package. That's that's the more effective thing in protecting your democracy and encountering allegedly corrupt regimes. That's Absolutely. democracy. The summit yeah. is not. The summit is it's it's window dressing. Actually, one of the, I think along with the anti-corruption initiative, one of the things that did give me greater optimism about the the sort of the, you know rules based values-based global order was the move to set an agreement on a minimum corporate tax rate of mm-hmm. uh, 15%, which kind of or- originated out of the G7 and then was, um, you know, has been adopted across the OECD. And, and th- that, I think, is, is along with things like tackling corruption, is how you, you move to a more um, viable multilateral order where, 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 where you don't have states undercutting each other, where you don't have the, these pools of hot money flowing around the the world causing um, instability and insecurity, but I think I think your point about the the kind of the building site that is American democracy at home speaks to the the I thought the most cogent criticism of the summit of democracies approach, which is that the battle for liberal democracy takes place as much within societies and the dividing lines crisscross societies internally as much as they do 
neatly dividing one set of countries from the other. I think I completely agree with you on that. But I just, I just like to let's let's just um, try and be optimistic here. I suppose the case for the summit of democracies and for Biden's whole agenda here is well, it was a uh, in a difficult year. He, he, you know, it was it was a starting point. It's a foundation on which he can build. And the midterms are late next year, and presidents often pivot to foreign policy after the midterms. When, as seems to be the case for Biden, they lose their um, ability to pass legislation. Um, do, you know, do do you see this being a first step towards something more effective or more meaningful? I don't think that a pivot to foreign policy is going to make American democracy more robust. That's the first part. I, I really do think. I mean, the cliche "democracy begins at home." Um, I think that's 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 true. The single best thing that the United States could do to build a more democratic international order would be to get its own house in order. I think that there are things that this administration could do to craft a foreign policy that was more based on human rights and democracy. And, and I don't want to be you know, cynical or pessimistic either, but I think that what we saw this year was a summit for democracy and also continued arms sales to Saudi Arabia and continuing to overlook or make excuses for certain allies' behavior or certain partners' behavior. You know, okay, so now you held the summit. Yes, they could now build a foreign policy that's more interested in human rights and more interested in democracy. Um, but whether they do that is, is up to them. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Well, that brings us on to the last prediction, which was one of mine, which was that there would be particular political unrest and turmoil in mid-income countries. I think you really got this one, I have to say. Yes, but I think it was a relatively safe bet because it's a very it's a very broad definition and it encompasses much of the world and much of the world that's prone to political crisis. So I think it was it was correct, but possibly a slightly giving myself a slightly easy one. But the, the basis for this, why I thought this was particularly likely in 2021, was that I felt that you'd have a sort of return to normality, sort of see above, uh, in the rich world um, with vaccines and things reopening and also economies returning to, to life thanks to quite generous government um, program, stimulus programs and sort of job support programs. Um, so you would have less economic scarring, also easier for um, schooling to continue in countries where people have, most people have some sort of internet access or access to home computers. Um, so that you would have parts of the world that were not a party to that sort of recovery, that were not rich enough to enjoy that sort of recovery, but where you still have a sort of a sizable middle class that has got used in recent decades to the idea of growing prosperity. So can you give can you give an example of uh, of such a country for our for our listeners? I can indeed. I cited several when we first discussed this at the start of the year. I talked about South Africa, um, Russia, um, Turkey, sort of to some extent India but most of all I cited Latin America which I think is the the kind of the ultimate paradigm of, of this sort of sort of country it's, as we discussed with regards to the Chilean election last week subsequently of course won by an uh, sort of an outsider from the left Gabriel Boric you you have these countries that did see large um, increases in in sort of prosperity that did see a growing middle class you know in the 1990s or 2000s and that where growth has stagnated the the pandemic has hit particularly hard both epidemiologically but also economically and so Socially. And I have to say that on pretty much all of those fronts, this prediction turned out to be right. We saw major protests in South Africa in the summer following the imprisonment of uh, former President Jacob Zuma, um, which was actually more of a pretext for, for, for protests that were themselves driven by things like unemployment and uh, economic inequality. You know, that included some of the worst violence since the end of apartheid. We saw protests in Russia earlier in the year over the arrest of Alexei Navalny, but there too, drawing on a kind of broader base of grievances to do with the denial of democratic freedoms, uh, stagnant living standards. We had the the farmers' protests in India, Turkey. Uh, we've seen a kind of an escalating economic crisis over the course of the year with um, alarmingly high inflation that has brought people out onto the streets, particularly in recent months, and uh, get a story that's very much not over. And then just turning to Latin America, which, as I said, was the sort of the most uh, forceful example of this. I think just all over. Um, that region, you've seen examples of this. We had major protests in Colombia in April, also about welfare, social justice, uh, protests against Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil over his handling of the pandemic. And we've had elections in a number of countries that have seen sort of anti, anti-system candidates come to power. So we saw kind of the political establishment overturned in Honduras, a victory for a, a left-wing outsider in, in Peru, and then most recently in Chile. Um, so I think, yeah, while that was a relatively easy prediction to make. I think it, it really has been borne out by the, the events of the year. If you listeners uh, would like the written version of our of our predictions, we go over these and more because Jeremy and I, I made seven. Jeremy, how many did you make at the start of the year? Uh, 10. Extra credit student Jeremy here made 10. Um, so if you, if you are interested and would like to see the full assessment of our start of year predictions, those are up. They are in the show notes and we encourage you to have a read and reflect with us on the year that was. Conforming to the extra credit student point, uh, I, I even gave myself a grade. So um, you sure did. Full accountability to our readers. Yes. 
That's all the time we have for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com slash international and join us next week. We will not have an interview episode on Monday as we normally do, but next Thursday we will have our year in review holiday spectacular complete with my annual, now annual, holiday surprise. Well, that's uh, something for us all to look forward to. Uh, and in the meantime, <laughs> subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. If you've enjoyed this episode and uh, the previous episodes over the course of the year, uh, please do like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and do tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.